And good morning once again, everyone. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5? And if you're new with us, let me just tell you, we are working our way through the book of Matthew, and we are in a section that runs from chapters 5 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And the introduction to the sermon are the Beatitudes, and there's eight of them in all, and these are the introduction that gives us the groundwork for the sermon, that it was directed at Jesus' disciples, not at the multitudes in general. And this morning we come to the eighth and final beatitude that Jesus gave to his disciples, found in chapter 5, verse 10, where he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this beatitude is slightly different from the other seven in that The first seven Beatitudes describe the character of the child of God. This eighth, though, is really the reaction of the world against the child of God. When kingdom character, and by that I mean when you're saved and the Spirit of God comes inside of you and uh, gives you a new heart, a new character, when kingdom character begins to blossom and grow in your life as you grow in Christ, what happens is you begin to live more and more righteously in this world. And as you do, the world begins to take notice, and at one point, they begin to attack with persecution. Why? Because as Jesus said in John 3, the darkness hates the light. Now, this was a fact that Jesus never hid from his followers. He was upfront with them from the very beginning as to the cost involved in becoming one of his disciples. In fact, right here, in the very first sermon he gave to them, He alludes to the fact that they would be persecuted for living the life he was calling them to live. In fact, this was a theme that was woven throughout his earthly ministry, something he talked about quite a bit, that before a person could commit themselves to him becoming one of his disciples, they first needed to count the cost. As I said, he spoke about this throughout his entire earthly ministry, not the least of which was on The last night before the crucifixion, the night of the Last Supper, in fact, you don't have to turn there, but in John 15, in verses 18 to 20, he says to them one more time, he said, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you belonged to the world, the world would love you because the world loves those who belong to it. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world, the world system, hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And then, of course, it was a lesson that was driven into their hearts in the most graphic way possible the next day when Jesus was beaten and crucified by the world as personified by the Jewish leadership and the Roman government. And then you remember in John 20, the evening of his resurrection, While the disciples were hiding in the upper room somewhere in Jerusalem for fear that the Roman Roman government was going to come after them next, at one point, as they're hiding in this upper room, Jesus comes right through the walls and appears to them, right? And after he calms them down, because they were freaking out, they thought he was a ghost, after he calms them down a little bit, what was the first thing he did? He showed them the nail prints in his hands and feet and the spear wound in his side, And he said to them, as the Father has sent me, so I am now sending you. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? 
You see what they've done to me, guys? Be ready, because they're not going to treat you any differently. The question is, why did he emphasize so much that persecution would be part of what it meant to be one of his disciples? Well, the answer to that, quite simply, was to weed out the uncommitted. To weed out the uncommitted. I mean, the Lord Jesus didn't want anyone following him who didn't understand what they were getting themselves into. This is something that I think we often fail to communicate with those that we witness to because we don't want to scare them off, right? I mean, look it. We're just so thrilled that anybody would listen to us, all right? I mean, you know, most people won't even give us the time of day when we want to share the gospel. If we find somebody that's even remotely interested and will listen a little bit, you know, we don't want to start getting into all that negative stuff right away. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to scare them away before we, you know, quote-unquote, close the deal. We've become salesmen for Jesus. We're selling a miracle product, Right? Who wouldn't want Jesus? Man, he's going to bless you and take care of you and prosper you and, and bless your business and you'll be driving Cadillacs and Ferraris and living in palatial estates and so on. You don't hear much about the cross anymore, do you? But let me just tell you this. If the Holy Spirit is really working in someone's heart to receive Christ, you're not going to scare them away with the facts. All you're going to do is give them a false idea of what Christianity is all about by not giving them the whole story. And that doesn't help anybody, because I think what happens is, as the Holy Spirit is convicting people, right, and trying to birth in them saving faith, we come along and we circumvent the process and we produce spiritually stillborn children. Because we don't want the Holy Spirit to take it all the way to brokenness and surrender as they've counted the cost and know what they're getting themselves into. That is a problem that we have to be constantly aware of. We're going to see this really illustrated in Matthew 19 with the rich young ruler. So where do we get there? That passage changed the way I witnessed the people. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But this idea of persecution being just part of the Christian life is found everywhere in the New Testament. started with Jesus presenting it, and then all of his disciples understood that, and as they wrote the New Testament, they all incorporated that into their teachings. I'll give you just three passages out of dozens we could look at. You don't have to turn there. Write these down. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 14. Listen to what Peter said. He said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. I've told you this before, Peter said. When trials come, don't think this is weird or what's going on or like something strange is happening. This is what it means to be a Christian. He said, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his, when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. The world blasphemes the Lord when they, when they persecute his people. But on your part, he is glorified. You're representing the king. Philippians 1, verse 29, Paul the Apostle said, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And then 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 3 and 4 where Paul said that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this, to trials and tribulation and persecution. For in fact, we told you before, when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. Now, it's important for us to understand that Jesus made sure to qualify, all right, 
What kind of persecution brings the blessings of God upon one of his disciples' lives? He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for what? Righteousness' sake. That's very important, by the way. In other words, blessed are those who are persecuted for living righteously in this world. He didn't say, blessed are you when you're persecuted when you do wrong. Okay? Like so many today. I mean, you know, you get these... A lot of these guys with these giant ministries on TV and all, and, and uh, they've taken a lot of money, and then down the road I've seen several where they have caught them embezzling money or, or misappropriating funds and so on, and so the IRS moves in, and so they get on TV and tell people we're being persecuted for the name of Jesus. No, you're not. You're being prosecuted because you're ripping people off. And notice the Lord also did not say, blessed are you when you're persecuted for being obnoxious. <laughs> I mean, sometimes in our zeal, we can cross the bounds and become a little bit obnoxious. Be careful of that, all right? You know, there's a humorous imaginary story written by Joseph Bailey called The Gospel Blimp that illustrates this. One author in describing this story put it this way, he said, the believers in an imaginary town conceive the idea of witnessing by means of a blimp, which is to fly over the town, trailing gospel signs and dropping tracts and leaflets called bombs, quote-unquote. It is a silly idea. No one is ever converted by it. But for a while, at least, the town is tolerant. Tolerance changes to hostility, however, when the promoters of the project add sound equipment to the blimp and begin bombarding their neighbors with gospel services broadcast from the air. At this point, according to Bailey, the persecution begins, quote-unquote. That night, the sound equipment of the blimp is sabotaged, and the Christians call it persecution. Well, it's not persecution. That's Mr. Bailey's point. It is a provoked response to an unjustified invasion of privacy. And similarly, it is not persecution today when Christians are snubbed for pushing tracks onto people who do not want them or for intruding into the affairs of others when they are not invited to do so, end quote. You know, I think a glaring example of this very thing is what is going on with one church, maybe you've heard about them in the news, called the Westboro Baptist Church, these are the guys that show up at the funerals of um, military people who have died in service with signs that say, thank God for dead soldiers because God hates America because America is pro-homosexual. And so they go to these services where families are grieving the loss of loved ones and they act in the most horrific ways. And when they're persecuted, they think they're being persecuted for righteousness sake. You're being persecuted because, because, <laughs> just, just because. Well, I had to really, it, it wanted to come out. I had to, it wouldn't have been that bad. But look, the only persecution that God recognizes as blessed is the kind that comes from living a righteous life, right? The life that Jesus lived and declaring the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. When we're persecuted for doing the work of God and for living like Jesus, you know what? That's a righteous persecution. And Jesus said, you are blessed of your father for standing up for my son. You know, one author said this, and I think we just need to consider for a second. He said, and I quote, the world admires noble and good people. 
They even give out awards for this because the world can identify with good and noble acts, but not with righteousness. The world may admire a good man, but will always react against a righteous man, end quote. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not sure I understand the difference between a good man and a righteous man. Well, let me try to clarify. The world defines a good person as a moral person, right? Can unbelievers be moral? Yeah, to some degree, right? There are a lot of unbelievers who try to live moral lives. But it's morality without righteousness. And folks, that's called Phariseeism. Because it only affects outward behavior. The Pharisees were moral. Although Jesus would go on to say in this very chapter, Matthew 5, that morality in the eyes of God is not just outward actions, but also inward attitudes. And so Jesus would go on to say in this very sermon, if you have never committed murder, but have hated someone in your heart, in the eyes of God, you've already committed murder against them. And if you've never physically committed the act of adultery, but you have lusted after a woman in your heart, then in the eyes of God, you've already committed adultery with that woman. True morality is not just outward behavior in the eyes of God, it's inward attitudes because God looks at the heart, and all sin begins in the heart. Sometimes, in some people, it never leaves the heart, that's where it stays, it's still sin. Sometimes it starts in the heart and is worked out into a life, and attitudes become an action. That's even worse. But it's very important that we understand that you can be moral without really being righteous. The Pharisees were of this group. And by the way, let me just say this again, pointing to Matthew 19, which we'll get there eventually. Um, Jesus said that goodness as defined by God means moral perfection. See, there's a lot of people who say, I'm good. Why, why do you think you're a good person? Because I'm moral. You know, I've heard atheists say, I'm moral. Okay, I don't need God. I'm moral without God. But Jesus said in Matthew 19 to the rich young ruler that God defines goodness by moral perfection. Is anyone on this earth apart from Christ morally perfect? Then nobody in the eyes of God is technically good. And that's what Jesus said. There is none good but God. But you see, righteousness means being right with God. How does a person get right with God? Well, they have to be sinless because God can't have fellowship with sinners. Yeah, but how is that possible since we've all sinned, right? Well, that's why Jesus came. Because the Bible says the kind of righteousness that God accepts into heaven, the kind of righteousness that makes us right with him, is not a, a, something we can earn or manufacture through our good works and moral deeds. It's something that God has to bestow upon us. He has to proclaim us righteous. How does he do that? Through Christ, who lived a righteous life. And if we put our faith in Jesus, then God pronounces me righteous. He puts me in Christ, the Bible says, and no longer even sees me. He sees Christ. Atheists can be moral, but only Christians can be righteous. And it takes true righteousness to please the heart of God. And as I said, true righteousness only comes from God when a person receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. At that instant, they are made righteous. Their account is marked paid in full because the blood of Christ has washed all their sins away. And God gives them a new heart on which he has written his laws. And now we want to do the right thing. We want to be moral from the heart. You know, you can be moral without being righteous, but you can't be righteous without being moral. Every Christian who is truly born again is moral because the Spirit of God lives in our hearts. God has written his laws in our hearts. And you know what? Now we want to obey God. Whereas beforehand, 
We might have done moral things, but we also did a lot of immoral things, didn't we? But now as Christians, the things that we do for God, we do out of love because he lives in our hearts. The main difference between moral people and righteous people is that moral people base their goodness on their morality, whereas righteous people, Christians, base their goodness on Jesus Christ. Because only Jesus can make a person righteous, which means right with God and worthy of heaven. And you know, that is something the world cannot tolerate. You know, when you talk to a religious person especially, who thinks that because all their life they have adhered to certain rules and regulations and ceremonies and rituals and so on and so forth, they have put a lot of effort in being righteous by their religious deeds. When you talk to a person like that, I'm talking about those who go to church but are not really born again, okay, religious unbelievers. When you tell them, look, no matter how hard you work, no matter how many good deeds you do, no matter how moral you try to be, you will never be good enough to earn heaven. That really bothers religious people especially, doesn't it? Those who are religious but unredeemed. And here we say, but you know what? I know I'm going to heaven as a Christian. Why? Because I've received Christ. I'm not good enough, but He is perfect. And when I gave my heart to Him, the Holy Spirit placed me in Christ so that God no more sees me, He sees Jesus. And that's why we get to go to heaven. And that's why the world reacts so violently sometimes to that message. Because when you have taken your whole life to do good things, to go to church, to light candles, to pray the rosary, to do these works and, and help out in this uh, area of ministry and, and so on and so forth, when somebody comes along and says, you know what, uh, all of that means nothing in the eyes of God. You need Jesus Christ or you're not going to get to heaven. That really bothers people. And so the first seven Beatitudes basically speak of the righteousness of Christ being manifested in the life of the Christian, whereas the eighth beatitude deals with the reaction of the world against that kind of righteous living, which Jesus said in verse 11 would basically produce a threefold reaction from the world. He said, blessed are you when they what? Revile you, number two, persecute you, number three, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. That is going to be the reaction of the world against those who are truly God's children, who are truly righteous. They're going to want to revile, persecute, and say all kinds of evil things against us. The word revile there comes from the Greek word that means to mock, to ridicule, to make fun out of. This is a powerful thing. Nobody wants to be reviled. Nobody wants to be mocked and ridiculed. That's a powerful way to shut people up. Our country is becoming more and more antagonistic towards Christianity. And because of it, you see more and more people making fun out of Christians, making us look like we're a bunch of idiots who don't even have our heads on straight, Bible-thumping morons, basically, who are living in the dark ages, you know, who are so unsophisticated and unenlightened that we would even think the Bible was something we should even read, let alone live by. So they revile us. Jesus said, blessed are you. That's what the world's going to do. He said they will persecute you, which means to harass or punish in a manner designed to injure, grieve, or afflict specifically reserved towards those people who are being persecuted for their faith. Persecution can take the form of verbal harassment because of our faith, which would include what Jesus said in verse 11, when he said that uh, the people of this world will want to say all kinds of evil against the follower of Christ, right? I mean, they're going to want to attack us and, and, and say all kinds of evil against us. What did Jesus say, though? If they do that, and they will, just make sure that what they say is what? 
False. Say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. You know, Peter said you can't stop the world from verbally attacking and lying about you, but just make sure when they do it is a lie, that you're not giving them any ammunition, that you're living righteously in the world, so they have to make stuff up about you. Persecution can also take the form of actions against us to cause us to suffer injury or some loss of some kind, uh, such as when a Christian maybe does is overlooked for the promotion because of their faith or even when they lose their job because they refuse the life of the company or misrepresent a product to make the sale. I'll tell you what, it's a tough environment out there for jobs. And the pressure is on to do whatever the company wants just to keep your job. What are you going to do? Well, I have to live, don't I? Well, Tertullian, the church father, had a man come to him and say, I just got a new job and the job is wanting me to do things that I know are not consistent with my Christianity. And what, is, what am I supposed to do? I must live, mustn't I? Must you? Tertullian said. <laughs> How much are we willing to compromise before we realize, you know what, I can't do this anymore? What does it mean to stand up for Christ? regardless of what the consequences are. And then, of course, persecution can take the form of physical abuse. It can be physical in nature, inflicting physical injury and or death upon someone who stands up for Jesus. The thing to remember about persecution is that often, not always, but I think often, most often, it will be directly proportionate to how godly you and I live in this fallen world for Jesus. Which means the more you live for him, the more intense the world will react against you and want to persecute you, want to shut you up, want to put out the light. Paul the Apostle told Timothy, a young pastor in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Yes, Timothy, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And yet, think about this, folks. We don't see a lot of persecution as Christians in America, do we? You ever ask yourself, why is that? Oh, we're a Christian nation. Oh, come on. Really? I mean, look around, folks. I mean, there's no lack of ungodliness and immorality in our country. There's plenty to go around. Why aren't we being persecuted as believers the way Jesus said we would be by those living in darkness? I'm wondering if the church in general in America has lowered the standards so as to escape persecution by trying to be a friend of the world. Remember what James said in chapter 4, verse 4? He or she who makes themselves a friend of the world is no longer a friend of what? Of God. We have to choose who we're going to be friends with. We've got to pick our friends. You know, either we're going to be the friend of God, like Abraham, who actually had that title, the friend of God. And what was Abraham all about? He was a pilgrim, wasn't he? He never owned any of the land he put his feet on, but was waiting for a day when God would give him and his descendants everything. We are pilgrims in this earth. We really don't own anything. Yes, technically we do, but you understand what I'm saying. This is not our home. We're just passing through. We are here for a witness. We're not here to settle down and get comfortable. We're here to be a light in the darkness. We're here to be the friend of God, not a friend of the world. And when Christians try to be a friend of the world, guess what happens? They hide their light and they lose their saltiness. What are you talking about? Well, we're going to look at what that means next time.
because Jesus called his church light and salt. Those are very important concepts, by the way. They tell us a lot about what it means to be a Christian in this fallen world. We'll look at that more when we get to that place. Just remember this, though. Jesus said in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. You know, I get very uncomfortable when the world honors Christians. Think about that, folks. I get very uncomfortable when the world honors Christians. I'm not going to give you any specifics, but you can just think about that. It goes on. To me, that's an anomaly. That's something that is abnormal. How is the world honoring Christians? What is going on that certain Christians are being honored by the world? As I read my Bible, we live for Jesus. The world's going to hate us and persecute us. Now let me just say this. When God's people, the church, stop being the moral conscience of the world, that's what we are, by the way. I'll give you a little hint about salt and light. It means, in part, that we are the moral conscience of this world. But when God's people stop being the moral conscience of the world, guess what? The world around us grows more and more immoral and ungodly. All you've got to do is read the book of Revelation to see this demonstrated. When the rapture happens and the church is taken off the earth, the light is gone. God then begins to work quickly to save people who become tribulation saints and bring the gospel to the people living at that time. But for a while, when the church is taken out of here, there is not, think about this, when the rapture happens, there is not one believer on the face of the earth. There is no salt, there is no light. So God never leaves himself without a witness, so what does he do? He raises up two witnesses, read Revelation 11, right? And through their ministry, thousands and thousands of people get saved. But initially, there is no representatives. And as soon as the light is taken, the moral conscience is removed from the world, which is the church, the world quickly begins to degenerate and decay because we are retarding that decay, that moral decay as the church. But listen, when God's people stop being the moral conscience of the world, the world around us grows more and more immoral and ungodly, which unleashes more and more persecution against the church until, folks, we have no more, quote-unquote, wiggle room. Aren't we always trying to wiggle our way to a compromised situation that we feel comfortable with? It's not so bad, right? I mean, come on, i got to try to compromise a little bit to save my job or whatever. And we can do that for a while, especially with days that are coming, when it's going to become worse and worse, darker and darker, and the lines are going to be drawn more and more clearly as to who belongs to God and who doesn't. That the church is going to be in America, I'm thinking of, is not going to be left with any wiggle room at all. And then we're going to be confronted with a reality that says either we deny Christ altogether or we stand fast. Now, we can't, we can't compromise anymore. We have to stand fast and fight for what we believe. And I think that's exactly the point God is bringing his church to. He is weeding out uncommitted people. He is weeding out religious unbelievers that populate churches all across America and water down the message of the gospel. He is weeding them out. How is he going to weed them out? Through tribulation. You know what the word tribulation means in the Greek? The ellipsis means to be pressed into a very narrow, confined place where we have no more wiggle room. We can't compromise with the world any longer. It's either, yes, I believe in Jesus, or no, I don't. We're coming to those days. You know, I love biographies. So I read biographies of Christians' lives all the time because I learn from their godliness, 
I learned from what God taught them. I am just about ready to finish a pretty large book that I've been reading on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, written by Eric Metaxas, called Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. Excellent book. See, Bonhoeffer lived during World War II. In fact, he was eventually martyred for his faith by the Nazis. But I'm drawn to this period of time because it got, the world got crazy. Some have called it the time when the world went insane, where all of a sudden it was like somebody unleashed the gates of darkness and darkness just flooded into the world like never before. And I feel like we're coming again to a time like that. Not exactly maybe like that, but as we move closer and closer to Christ's return and the whole one world thing, and I, I think we're going to begin to see darkness unleashed upon our nation and a world unlike we've ever seen it before. Bonhoeffer lived at a time like this. In fact, many people, and I've heard a lot of things about Dietrich Bonhoeffer over my years of ministry. I even had one pastor tell me one time, you know, he was a liberal. Really? Yeah, he was a liberal. And as I've come to read the book, he was no liberal. He was no liberal. But they jump on, liberals have claimed him for their own because they jump on one, something he said in one of his writings where he says, we need in Germany a religionless Christianity. Liberals are like, great, see? I guess in their mind he was saying we need a secular Christianity. What is that? It's an oxymoron. How can you have a secular Christianity? But for liberals, it's not about the spiritual atonement and virgin birth. No, no, no. It's about helping the poor and social justice and all that kind of stuff. So they claim Bonhoeffer for their own. But you have to understand, Bonhoeffer was not talking about liberalism. He was not talking about, you know, a, a non-spiritual, secular Christianity. He grew up in Germany with the state church, right? Germany had a state-run church. Pastors were paid by the German government to be pastors. And if you read the book, you realize that all his life he grew up with a dead formal religion. When he said we need a religionless Christianity, what he was saying is we need a Christianity that's alive and vibrant, that has the, the, the life of Christ flowing through its members, not this dead formal stuff that we've grown up with. We need something that's living and powerful, something that transcends the pews on Sunday mornings and is taken out into the world in which we live where we are lights in the darkness. That's what he was all about. And when Hitler rose to power, Hitler took the the state church and named it the Reich Church after the Third Reich. Of course, most of the people who belonged to the Reich Church were just religious unbelievers. And they could care less. It didn't matter who was in charge of the church. They were not spiritually minded at all. However, there were some Christians, real Christians, who were conflicted and belonged to the Reich Church as well. What do you mean? How could that be? Because in the German mindset, they had so married the church with the world that the church just needed to obey the world or the state because it was also ordained by God. So when the state became more and more corrupt and evil, a lot of Christians just simply kept following Hitler, thinking that well, it was going to get better eventually. And of course, when Hitler really began to roll and began to imprison people, Jews, I'm thinking primarily, and began to kill them, Bonhoeffer began to scream at the top of his lungs, a prophet, you might say, to the nation. This is wrong. Somebody told me after first service that he had heard that there was a church that was right alongside the rail tracks 
that carried Jews to the concentration camps. And on Sunday mornings, they would hear the trains go by with Jews screaming and crying. You know what they did? They just sang a little louder. That was the very thing Bonhoeffer was coming against. This, this dead Christianity that thought that you could be safe in the pew and didn't really have to live your faith out in the world. You know, one of Bonhoeffer's good friends, another godly pastor, was in prison seven years before Bonhoeffer, wrote something that was piercing. He said, when they came for the socialists, I kept quiet because I wasn't a socialist. When they came for the union members, I kept quiet because I wasn't a member of the union. When they came for the Jews, I kept silent because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one to speak on my behalf. You know, we have to stand up against evil. We have to be like Jesus in this world. If our Christianity doesn't affect the way we live, and if it doesn't compel us to stand up against evil when it confronts us, then you know what? It's dead and worthless. You might as well just get rid of it. So Bonhoeffer organized a group of, of pastors and all who he called the Confessing Church. These were the real believers. And they were willing to stand up for what they believed. They spoke out from the pulpits. They wrote literature. They wrote letters. They were published in the newspapers all about the evils of this regime. They stood up against the evil. Bonhoeffer, at one point, things were getting so hot, and they were really starting to turn their attention, the government, on him, that some of his friends became so concerned for his safety, they pulled a few strings and got him a professorship in the States. So he sailed to America, I think in 1943 for the second time. Had it all lined up, he was going to be a professor at a, at a Christian university out there in New York. He would be safe from persecution. He got there and he was miserable. I mean, he no sooner landed in New York, he was miserable. He felt like he had forsaken his people. He said, how can I stay here, guarded from all the persecution, and then go back to Germany and rebuild the church when I've tried to escape the persecution. So after about two months, I think it was, he sailed back to Germany, was eventually imprisoned, spent 18 months in prison in Germany, and he was eventually executed. Here's what Bonhoeffer said. I'll just give you one quote. You can read the book. It's incredible. He said, the restoration of the church must surely depend on a new kind of monasticism. He was just talking about separating from the world and getting serious about God. Which has nothing in common with the old, but a life of uncompromising discipleship, following Christ according to the Sermon on the Mount. I believe the time has come to gather people together to do this, end quote. And folks, I believe the time has come to gather people together to do the same thing. I think our churches are way too full of comfortable Christians who have no intention of really living for Jesus in this world and certainly won't stand up against evil if it meant their own imprisonment and or death. Listen, when Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, the Greek is actually, blessed are those who allow themselves to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see, there is a mindset at work here, folks, an attitude that sees persecution not really as a bad thing, although it's not enjoyable, understandably, but not as a bad thing, but as something that identifies us with Jesus and proves that we belong to him. And that's why Jesus went on to elaborate on this one beatitude. In verses 11 and 12, again, he said, Blessed are you 
when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hey, you know you're on the right team, right? The world hates and persecutes you. You can rejoice. You're on the right team. Let me tell you what the early church suffered for the cause of Christ. He warned them. He told them it was coming. You know what the early Christians had to suffer for Christ? First of all, Rome was very tolerant. Rome was very polytheistic. Rome didn't care what God you worshipped. As long as once a year... Every Roman citizen was required to stand before a bust of Caesar with a fire in front of it and take a pinch of incense and put it in the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. If you did that, you could worship Jesus or or anybody else you wanted to. The early Christians, though, would not do that because in their mind, there was only one Lord of their life, right? Now, today, how many of us would rationalize that? Oh, it means nothing to me. I'll I'll say that. Because I know in my heart, Jesus is my Lord. But see, they understood it wasn't just about them. It was about the witness they were having in the world. And if you wouldn't say Jesus, uh, Caesar was Lord, you would be imprisoned, your property confiscated. They would often torture you in a variety of ways that you can just imagine. Many thousands were crucified. Some were tied to poles and doused with pitch and then lit on fire to light Caesar Nero's garden at night. Others were sewn into animal skins and thrown out into the Colosseum where wild animals tore them apart. You know, I said the first service, without getting too graphic and gross, I mean, have you ever wondered what it would be like to be eaten alive by a lion? i got to tell you, not that I do this a lot, but I have thought about that. I don't dwell on it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, I'm not sitting around thinking about it all the time. But I have thought about it. What would it be like to be cast into an arena of hungry lions knowing that you were going to be eaten alive? And would my faith be strong enough to stand up for my Lord if I knew that was going to be my fate? You know, the time to prepare for something like that is not when you're facing it. It's right now, before you're facing it. Am I saying that's going to happen in America? No, I'm not saying that's necessarily going to happen in America. I'm just saying I think persecution is coming. Are we ready for it? Are we prepared to physically suffer for the cause of Christ? You know, I'll close with this. One author, I believe, nailed it, summed it up very well. He said, and I quote, he said, There is a brand of Christianity that is popular today that is unlike that which Jesus spoke about in the Gospels and Paul and the others wrote about in the Epistles. It's an easygoing, popular kind of religion that makes no demands on the lives of its followers, a broad way that involves no cross, no conviction of sin, and no real commitment to Christ. It's shallow, superficial, and safe. The world has no problem accepting, accepting and following a religious system that allows them to stay in their sins. But they will crucify that man or woman who dares to speak out against their sins while challenging them to pick up the cross and follow Jesus down the narrow path of obedience and surrender. The world welcomes a compromising Christian, but it hates the Christian who does the will of God. In some respects, this final beatitude is the measure of all the others. For the more we grow in our Christian character, listen, 
the more we will experience conflict. It is impossible to have the one without the other, end quote. Take that last part to heart. God is calling us to an uncompromising Christianity. But you will never be a friend of the world if you live full on for Jesus. In fact, let me just paraphrase one more time what Jesus said. He said, Blessed are you when the world hates you, reviles you, and physically abuses you. The Greek says, Thank God and jump up and down for joy. For great is your reward in heaven. See, but that's only going to matter to you and me if our mind is in heaven, right? Didn't Paul say, Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth? Because if you set your mind on things on this earth, what's going to happen? You're going to want to start laying up treasures for yourself on the earth. You're going to want to start building a kingdom for yourself on the earth. And folks, we are just passing through. Do not become entangled with the cares of this life. Jesus is coming. We're going home soon. And I want to see him and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so to have that mindset, to have that heart that's willing to suffer for his name, you first of all need to be a genuine child of God. No games. No going to church and thinking that's all I need. I'm talking about really surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. Then you have to be filled with the Spirit every day, which means in part to be controlled by the Spirit, to be in God's Word, to be in communion with God, and to do, want to do His will every part of the day. Where the Spirit is, you're saying, Lord, Take control of me today. I want to do what you want. I don't want to live my, for myself anymore. And that's going to require one other element to have the mind of Christ. Jesus who said, I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I have come to lay down my life a ransom for many. And if that is our heart and our mindset, I guarantee you, when persecution comes, it's going to be something that we are going to not enjoy, but we're going to rejoice in. Somebody said the other day to me that when, I don't know if it was me or somebody else was talking about what early Christians went through, how they were persecuted and beaten and abused and thrown to lions and crucified and set on fire, it brought tears to her eyes as she was hearing this because in her mind, how could a God of love allow that to happen to his children? Well, first of all, let me ask you this. Did God ever tell us it was going to be any different? I mean, you know, sometimes people think God has let them down. As I've already showed you, Jesus Christ never, ever sidestepped persecution as a reality to those who would follow him. So it's not like God is springing something on us that he never told us was going to happen. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I'm not sending you. Look what they've done to me. Don't expect you to be treated any different. Now, let me just tell you this. Why did God allow his people to suffer like that? Yes, it identified them with Jesus, but the reason that was important was because the people in those seats in those Colosseums, they needed to know that these people were dying for one person, Jesus Christ. They all knew who Jesus was. You see, Rome had become so jaded with pleasure, sexual and otherwise. Most Romans didn't have anything to live for, let alone die for. And when they saw these Christians being crucified, or thrown into the arena where the lions were about to be released, and they were praying, they were calm, they were singing hymns, they were asking God to forgive their tormentors. 
That made the most powerful impact on these people you could ever imagine. It was in the first three centuries that because of the way Christians died, the Roman world was won to Christ. I think it was again Tertullian who said this, blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. If God could do it any other way than through our suffering, he would. He couldn't save the world unless his son suffered. And he can't save the people of this world unless we face suffering when asked to, as Jesus did. So blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs, and the Greek says theirs alone, is the kingdom of heaven. May God give us grace to stand up for Jesus in these last days, no matter what's coming our way, by his grace and strength, and be a light. Father, we thank you so much that you have allowed us to be your children, that you have made us salt and light in this world. And Lord, we don't know what the future brings. We don't know exactly what's going to happen in America and how much persecution we're going to have to endure before you come for your church. But Lord, whatever is coming, give us grace right now to be prepared. So recognize this is not something strange or, or something you never talked about. It's something you said all the time would happen. Something that we as Americans have enjoyed not having to face for 200 and some odd years. But that may be changing as we speak. And give us the grace, Lord, if we are called upon to be beaten, tortured, or even killed for your name's sake, that we deal with grace, with love, with forgiveness, that we be a light, that people might see our light and be brought to you. Thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.